you would like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Joshua. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Joshua, uh, if you want to go ahead and open them to chapter 6, uh, we won't be starting there, but that's where we're going to wind up um, fairly quickly. As you're doing that, I want to just take a moment to extend the, the welcome and the thanks that has already been said by, by so many here. It is so good to see each and every one of you, especially those of you who are visiting with us. That is a great encouragement to have you here with us. Uh, if you haven't already done so, fill out one of the visitor cards that is in front of you and give that to, to myself or one of the other men here so that we can just have a recollection of the time that you were here with us. Um, in the book of Joshua, we have recorded for us this amazing moment this, this great moment that happens in the history of Israel. And it's one that sometimes we just read about and move past very quickly. We might just overlook it if we're not careful as we read through the Scriptures. But this is a moment where untrained, unorganized young Israelites go up and conquer and defeat the great city of Jericho. Now as we get into this account this morning, I hope that you're going to be thinking about the, the awesomeness of this account for certain, but also about your own life. How does this affect me? How does this which was recorded beforehand for my admonition, for my learning, what, what am I supposed to take from it? What do I learn from this account? Because this certainly is ancient history. This is, some, this is going back way into man's history. But the God that made it possible is not. The God that made it possible is just as active today as He was in that day. And so we need to think about that. If He led His people then, and He's still leading His people today, how can I let Him lead me? I want you to think about those things as we start this study. But before we get into it, we need to find out what exactly was Jericho. What was that? Whenever, whenever Moses speaks to the second generation of Israelites, if you remember the first generation, they reached the Jordan. They send 12 spies into the Canaanite promised land. And when they get in there, they say, that land's full of giants. That land's full of great cities. That land is full of things that we just can't deal with. And because of their fear, because of their lack of trust, they are told to go back out into the wilderness. That generation dies. And now Moses is speaking to this next generation. And he tells them, you're going to go into the land and you're going to overthrow nations with cities that have walls that reach to the skies. That's a great depiction of this great city of Jericho. Now here's a picture, artist rendition. It's not one of the greatest ones, I don't believe. But it's a pretty good one that shows us a little bit about what the city of Jericho likely looked like. One, it was a city built to be impregnable. They were not intending people to break down their walls and come in. It was a city built on a hill or a mound called a tell. That's, you can see kind of the, the surrounding land here is a little bit lower than where the actual city lies. It was built up on this great big tell so that they could have defenses from people that would come in. And not only was it built on a tell, but at the bottom or, or surrounding that tell, they built what is called a rampart. We see that up here. There's people that live on the rampart. There's, there's houses that are built in this area. There's things that they use in this area. But essentially, this is another hill. It's an embankment. It's something that you have to get up to get to the city. And so it makes it difficult for people to make, you know, an army to make that journey up to the, to the just to get to the, the top of the city. And at the bottom of that, they built a retaining wall. Now you can't really see it real well in this picture. The artists here kind of shown it as another, another hill. But in this picture, maybe we can see a little bit better, this retaining wall that is built, that holds up that embankment, that, that rampart that they built. And that retaining wall, from, from archaeological proof where they have studied the area where Jericho lied, you can still find the ruins of it today, they have found that in many places, the, what is left, the, the remnants of that wall, show that it had to have been anywhere from 12 to 15 feet high. That's really, really tall. That's, that's pushing the, the, the height of the, the tallest part of our ceiling. Uh, and, and even possibly past that. So they have this huge 
this huge re- uh, embankment that they have to get up, but at the bottom of the embankment is this retaining wall that somehow they have to find their way to the top of just so they can climb a hill and get to the city. And yet at the top of that embankment is another wall. And this wall was what was called the lower wall of Jericho. And this wall is built somewhere around 20 to 26 feet high. It's made out of mud and brick. And, and it's not quite as strong as, the, embank- as the, the retaining wall at the bottom. But it's, it's thicker though. It is almost 12, uh, 6 to 12 feet thick in places. And so here you are. You're an Israelite nation. You've come to the land and you say, okay, we've got to, we've got to take care of Jericho. Jericho is, is a city that is in Canaan. We've got to do something about it. And so we come and we see the city for the first time. And what are we met with? We're met with essentially a wall that's anywhere from, from, from 30 to 40 feet tall. Possibly 41 feet tall if you take the highest of all these measurements. This is what we're looking at. This huge wall that seems like it stretches to the sky. And if we want to fight that, well, the, the tactical decision of the day is we lay siege to it. We lay siege. We, we say, find out where people come in and out of the wall, and we just stop them. You can't come out because if you come out, we're going to kill you. And you can't bring food in. You can't bring water in. And eventually the people are going to get hungry and start to starve. And they, they're, not, they're, they're not going to have anything to do with the dead in the city and, and the refuse from the city. And at some point, the city is going to either get so weak that they all come out to fight or we're going to be able to just march right in and, and kill them. That is the logical idea of how you take care of a city like Jericho. But that's not what the Israelites are going to do. God says, you're just going to march straight in there. Well, if I march straight up to this 40-foot wall, first of all, I have to figure out how am I going to get over the wall. Second of all, the wall is not just the only thing there. You're going to have the residents of Jericho, that lovely bunch, are going to be throwing rocks and dumping oil and shooting arrows and lobbing spears and everything they can do to keep you out. And if somehow I manage to get over this 40-some-odd-foot wall and make my way up the rampart, I find another wall with yet more Jerichoans who are throwing arrows and, or shooting arrows and throwing stuff at me. And Jericho truly was a city that was, that was impenetrable. It was hard to get in to Jericho. But the Israelites were going to do it. They were going to take the city. God had instructed them to do this. And before we can learn how they took the city, we need to figure out why they needed to take the city. And that is... Jericho was not just a great city of Canaan. Jericho was an obstacle in the way of the Israelites standing between them and the promised inheritance that God had said. God says, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you this nation or or this land that you will be a nation that inhabits and and you will have rest from your enemies. And if you want it, I've given it to you. But you've got to go in and you've got to go take it. And so this was standing in their way. The first generation failed. Remember, they refused. They said, we can't do that. They wanted to turn back to Egypt. And this generation was dangerously close to making the same decision. Some of them were saying, we'll just stay on this side of of the Jordan. We won't go into the land and we'll just set up houses out here. And Moses says, don't you remember... That because of the the unfaithfulness, because of fear, the previous generation died. And so this generation decides we will do as God has instructed. We will go into the land. We will take the land that God promised to Abraham. But that means we're going to have to face this looming problem on our horizon. We're going to have to face our Jericho. What I want us to see this morning is that hasn't really changed today you might be surprised to learn that the battle of Jericho has been waged time and time again. We're going to find that the the components of this battle that that they face, they're going to crop right back up the moment the city is defeated. Because Jericho represents anything that stands between us, stands between people and the promises that God has made to them. Jericho stands, uh, represents something that is between that, that is hindering that. And whether that be some sin in our lives, whether it be something that we, that we have struggled with and that we know we ought not be doing, but we need, to, we, we need to follow God, we need to do what's right, whether it be a persecution of some sort that this world places on us, if we fail to go out to battle against that, if we fail to... to 
to, to be motivated by the power and love of, of, of God. And we decide instead we're going to quit. We decide instead we're not even going to face this battle. We're going to turn and we're going to run back to the world. We're going to find ourselves like that Israelite nation that was lost in the wilderness, that died wandering. What I want us to see today is God provided them, the first generation and the second generation, a way to conquer Jericho. And He provides us today a way as well. And we have to recognize the seriousness of this battle. We have to also recognize we can't cower before the great walls that are before us. So how did the Israelites do it? How did they conquer Jericho? Well, before we get into what was actually said in chapter 6, I want you to look back at chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we read about these memorial stones that are erected. There it says, And it came to pass, <clears throat> when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the tribe, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in times to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that at the waters of the Jordan were... Uh, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of, of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. These memorial stones that they erected, we see that before they even go into battle, before, before they even go and approach Jer uh, Jericho, God says, I want you to do something. I want you to set up a memorial. And so they go and they gather these stones out of, out of the Jordan and they, they set up this memorial to remind the children of Israel of the power of God to stop the water of the Jordan. The Jordan had overflown its banks as we read. It was in flood stage. It was, it was spread out. It was larger than it, than it normally was. And God stopped the water, dried it up so that they could cross over. And He says, I want you to remember what I've done. In fact, in verse 24, it says, Tell all the people of the earth, or, or tell all that the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. He says, that, This is something I want you to memorialize because I want your children to remember it. I want them to tell other people, and I want the world to remember that I have done great things, that I have done powerful things. Remember what God has done to bring them to this point, bringing the, the, all the plagues down on Egypt, bringing them through the wilderness, bringing them through the Red Sea. Over and over again, His power has been on display. He says, and I want your children to remember it. I want you to remember what I have done. That was going to be vitally important for them in conquering Jericho, is remembering what God had done. And also in verse 13, we read there, it says about 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the, uh, the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. We learn the size of the force that's going in here. Now, the Israelite nation is likely larger than this, but 40,000 of them are crossing over to go into battle. I'm going to tell you right now, it is most likely that Jericho has more than 40,000 men to meet that challenge. They have more men that they can bring out. The Israelites here are the small force coming into this. They're, they're not the ones with overwhelming numbers. They're the underdogs in this battle. They have that great wall to deal with, but there's a great force behind that wall as well. But God says, I want you to take these 40,000 men. I want you to go over. But then we get to chapters 5. And we start to see some real interesting things happening in the camp of the Israelites. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, we learn that the children of Israel have to consecrate themselves before they can go into this battle. So it was, in verse 1, 
When all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. That seems like a good time to strike. They're afraid. That's the time when we need to go in here and we need to get things done. But God says at that time to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskin. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that He would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that He would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom He raised up in their place. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were all healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. God says you can't go into the land yet. Yeah, the, the kings are afraid. They've seen what's going on. They recognize something is different about this force. But you're not ready to go in yet because you still carry, you still bear the reproach of Egypt in your people. <clears throat> Why was that? It's because they had not been following the law, the words, the commands that God had been given to, the, to this nation, to this people. You see, going all the way back to Abraham, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Your people are going to wind up in this land which you stand. They're going to be people that are going to live in Canaan. And the mark of that covenant, the symbol, the witness of that covenant, is going to be that the firstborn, or excuse me, the males of your, of your offspring are going to be witnessed by that with circumcision. Genesis 17 verses 10 through 14 tells us that. He tells them there, not only is it the males born to you, but the people who you conquer in battle, the stranger that comes to live with you, the people that you purchase, anyone that is a part of your family, if they are male, they're going to be a part of this covenant, but they have to wear the sign of the covenant. They have to be circumcised. So what he was telling the children of Israel essentially is you need to make yourself set apart from the people that you're going in here. They don't bear the sign of the covenant. You have to. You have to be consecrated or you have to be sanctified. That is the idea of being made holy. And you do that by circumcising yourself, by, by following the commands that God had given. And for whatever reason, when they had been in Egypt, they did these things. But when they went into the wilderness, they quit. They stopped. And God said, that's not what I wanted. I wanted that covenant upkept. And so he tells them, you must bear this mark before you go in. But did you also notice in verse 4, he also reveals something else in, in, this, in this passage. And that is that not only were the men who had been bearing this mark of the covenant, not only had they died out, but the men of war had died out. The men who had been trained, the men who knew how to fight, the men that knew a life other than wandering in the wilderness had died. And what is left is a nation that is a nation of vagabonds. They're nomads. They're travelers. They don't, they don't know what it means to go up against a larger force like this. He says, these are not men of war. But these are the men that I'm going to use. These are the men that I am going to take and face probably against a battle-hardened and prepared stronghold like Jericho. And then verses 13 through 15, we have this very strange but extremely significant account in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So this man, so he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. We might ask ourselves, who is this man? Who is this that Joshua's come into contact? Is this just some, some, some angel, maybe an archangel, that has is, that is come to fight on his side? Well, I believe that we can make a, a, a pretty good educated guess as we start to look at the way that, that this account is described. First of all, there is a fact there. This man declares himself leader of the army of the Lord. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. The army of the Lord is under my authority. And this response, when Joshua says, who are you for, me me or my adversary? This response to that question causes Joshua to do something very specific. He falls down and he worships him. Now, this is not the only time we have seen men fall on their face and worship beings from heaven. And every single time that those beings are angels, the response is always the same. Get up. I'm not worthy of that worship. God alone should be worthy, uh, is worthy of that worship. This man doesn't say that, though. This man does not rebuke Joshua for his worship. Instead, as we read on, Joshua, in worshiping him, says, says essentially, why are you here? What, what, what is it that you want? And in this case, he says, I want you to, rep- to recognize something. I want you to recognize that where you are right now is a holy place. I submit that the man that, Josh- that Joshua was speaking to was Jesus. Was God with us. God in the flesh, standing before His people, saying, I've come to fight with you. And so what makes this place holy? It's the presence of God. It's the fact that God was there with them to fight on their side. And they needed to know that. They needed to know you are a people that have come out of the wilderness. You are a people that are not trained to fight. You are a people that have not been following God's Word the way that you should. You have not been consecrated to Him. But because you have trusted Me to march into battle, to cross the Jordan, to to obey My commands, I'm here with you. Don't shirk away from this great challenge that's in front of you. Be prepared to follow and to fight. This is a very significant thing that's happening here. And right after, we see instruction come from God in chapter 6. He says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went in and none came out. I imagine the the people of Jericho probably said, Hey, they're getting ready to lay siege to us. That's what they're fixing to do. Jericho is securely shut up. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city in seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, And when you hear the sounds of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. Then... You shall shout. God gives instruction. He says, you're going to march around the city. Do you notice who he called them? He said, you're going to march around the city, you men of war. The men of war died out. The men that had known war died out in the wilderness. He says, this is how I see you guys. You may not see yourself this way. You're men of war. 
You are my tools of righteousness to go into this land and exact my judgment. And we must see that that's what's going on here. This isn't just the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. This is also enacting God's judgment upon the residents of Canaan, for they were wicked. And so he says, you are mighty men. You are men of war, and I'm going to use you to tear down mighty strongholds. So go march around the city once a day for six days, and seven priests are going to go before you, and they'll have seven ram's horns, and they're going to blow on their horns. I imagine Joshua and maybe some of the people when they heard this, they say, okay, then, then what's the plan, God? Then what are we going to do? So he says, on the seventh day, I want you on the seventh day to march around the city seven times instead of one time like the six days before. But on that seventh time, when the priests blow their trumpets, I want all the people to shout. I really wonder. I really wonder how many people of this large number, this 40,000, I wonder how many people thought, wow, this is a remarkable battle plan. I wonder how many people thought, wow, this is not a battle plan. What are we doing? Why are we going to try this? This isn't even a plan at all. But you remember, God has said, I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to set those stones up to remember that I stopped the waters, that I've been with you, that my power is going before you. And so we see one person, at the very least, takes this charge extremely seriously. And that's Joshua. Joshua sets up the people exactly the way God says he wants them set up. This is what God wants. This is how I'm going to do it. And he goes so far that after he instructs the priests on what they are going to do, he goes to the people and he says, look, here's what you're going to do. Read again with me verse 10. He goes to the people and he says, you shall not shout. You shall not make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout. Then you will shout. That's how serious Joshua took the commands of God. God said on the seventh day, when the priests blow the horns, then the people shout. And so Joshua says that's what's going to happen. But they might have said, you know, God didn't say we had to be silent. God never said that we, we couldn't speak. He never said that we couldn't shout before they blew the horns too as we marched around. He, he never said that we couldn't march around proclaiming to them the God of heaven is about to bring these walls down. Isn't that the way that a lot of times we think about the Word of God? Isn't that a way a lot of times that the world thinks about the Word of God? God never said I couldn't fill in the blank. You know, God never said that I couldn't have a drink of wine. He just said I couldn't be drunk. I couldn't be a drunkard. That's the way we like to justify things that are important to us and that we don't want to give up. We see that on an individual level. We even see that sometimes on congregational levels. God has never said, I can't do, the church can't do these things. And so that must, be, that must mean that we can do it. Joshua said, I'm not going to think about it that way. Because thinking about it that way opens ourselves up to getting to doing things that God didn't want us to do. Instead, he says, God told us not to be, to, or God told us to shout when the priests blew their trumpets on the seventh day. That's what we're going to do. We're going to shout when the, when the priests blow their trumpets. I believe that Joshua recognized this because he was so close to Moses, who was, was Moses' assistant. And, and when you look throughout the Scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, uh, which is interesting, and it, that passage happens not too terribly long before we get to Joshua chapter 6. God had just told Moses, you need to go talk to Joshua and you need to tell him these things. And in verse 2 he says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. And he tells him why. He said, here's the reason why. That you may think that's a good thing to do. That Oh, he wanted me to do this, but I could add this to it, make it even better. He says, no, here's why you don't do that. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. He said, if you're adding to it, Joshua, if you decide, you know what, we're, we're going to shout when he said to shout, but we're also going to, we're going to sing songs the whole time around. And we're going to do these other things as well. He's changed the command. And even if he thinks it's great, even if the whole world thinks it's great, he's changed the command. And so for this reason, Joshua goes to all the, paper, all the people and he says, look, here's what God wants. That's what we're going to do. 
Nothing more, nothing less. We are going to obey our God. And the people do obey. Verses 11 through 20, and that brings victory. Excuse me. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they arose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times, and the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets, and Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of them, of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and irons are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Now, I'm the kind of person with, a, with an overactive imagination. I, I understand that. I'm aware that sometimes that gets me into trouble when I think about things just a little too much. But I can't help but imagine being one of these residents of Jericho, one of these Jerichoans, standing on top of this massive wall, watching these Israelites march around, this little group of wanderers that have come into my backyard, and now they're going to make war with me by marching around my city day after day. I imagine that at first they were afraid. We see that the kings of the land were, were, were filled with fear. I imagine before too long, they, that begins to become a spectacle. I mean, you think about what they're doing. They're marching around with a throne. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. It was what carried the mercy seat. This is where, where God would set in His holiest of holies in the tabernacle. That's what they're going to vision. They're going to see that and go, oh, that's a throne. But there's nobody on it. They don't have a, they don't have a king. And yeah, they, they've got something because that, the, the waters were, filled, were, were dried up, but... But here you have these people that are marching around following an a invisible king. That really doesn't, in, in my mind, being, putting myself in the place of the residents of Jericho, that doesn't breed a lot of fear. I wonder if any of them thought that, that they have no leadership. This is, this is going to profit them nothing. And I wonder how many Israelites may have been tempted to think the same thing. Marching day after day around the city going... Will God come through in the end? Is this really going to work? Is this really on the seventh day of the results that He promised actually going to be there? But despite any possible perceived doubt or perceived persecution that they received, any mockery that may have happened, and again, that's, that's my imagination. That's, nothing from Scripture says that happens. But despite any of that, the result that does happen is nothing short of magnificent. It is awesome. Walls towering 50, maybe 60 feet in the air, if you count that upper wall, come collapsing down at the sound of the trumpet and the shout of the people. This this city that had proved impenetrable before, God, He opens the floodgates. He lets His people in. Walls that filled the inhabitants of Jericho with pride, with security, with, with hope. This is, where, this is our protection. These walls around the city is what protects us. God said, you've built walls around your city, but that's not going to protect you from my judgment. And again, Deuteronomy 9.5 tells us God was driving the nations out of the land, again, to fulfill that promise made to Abraham, but also due to their wickedness. He tells the Israelites, he said, don't, don't think that I'm doing this because of your righteousness. You guys have been stiff-necked. You guys have fought with me the whole way. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because I made a promise to Abraham. It's because I went to these nations and they would not repent. And so because of their wickedness, I'm bringing judgment on them. And so Jericho was defeated. And in its defeat, again, came a new problem. You read chapter 7. Some people took of the items of Jericho. 
accursed items, items that they were told you don't take, you don't touch. This whole city is consecrated to God. You're not going to loot anything from it. And once again, they find themselves in a situation where there is something in front of them keeping them out of the promised land. Once again, they're faced with another Jericho. And this time they go up to Ai, and they're defeated there because of, because of their wickedness. So that battle of Jericho, it doesn't end. It just changes form. There's something standing in their way over and over again, in between them and entering into the land. And so if that's true then, we should not be surprised to find out it's true now today. And what are some ways that we can face our Jericho today? And I want to give you a few real quickly. And then this, this sermon will, will, will be concluded and it will be yours for you to consider. The number one thing that I want to bring up is the number one thing that God had them to do. We have to start by remembering who God is. They need to set up a memorial. We need to set up a memorial today to remind us what God has done in the past. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is incredibly important for us to understand that we can't begin facing the things standing between us and our inheritance in heaven until we begin focusing on the sin that could be in our lives. And to focus on that sin, we have to focus on God's Word. We have to learn from it. We have to believe. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If we want to have faith in God, faith that will help us to move past these obstacles in our way, we have to know who He is. We have to hear the Word of God and we have to learn what He has done. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. If you're reading from the King James or the New King James Version, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. We need to be careful with God's Word and recognize the power of it. That is, that is for our benefit. It is for our memorial. And so we should do something with this. Maybe not, I'm going to suggest we shouldn't just do it once a year. We shouldn't just do it when things get bad. We should set this up as a memorial stone in front of us that we are often uh, going to turn back to to say, what has God done? Remind ourselves, even if we think, oh, I've read that a hundred times, I need to read it again. I need to know what God has done for me in my life. I need a constant reminder of the power of my great God. Studying daily helps us to remind us who the God is that is aiding us in battle. We also need to consecrate ourselves. We need to make ourselves holy. Again, that meaning of consecration or sanctify, is, technically those are the same words. It says that the definition of those words is to take something and set it apart. If I sanctify this laptop for the purpose of, of this PowerPoint, that's the only thing we use this laptop for. We've set it apart for that. We're not taking it on business trips and doing this and that with it. We've set it apart. Well, the Israelites need to set themselves apart to God. We need to set ourselves apart to God as well. We need to be consecrated. And, and all that stems back from what God said in Leviticus 20, verse 7. He said, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. We need to make ourselves holy to God. And we do that by being acceptable, having acceptable lives in Christ. But we don't do it the way they did it. Consecration was done in that day by circumcision. Done with the hand. But rather, today we do it by circumcision done on the heart. Circumcision done without the hands of physical man. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. When Paul is speaking to the Colossians, the Christians there, he reminds them how they got to where they were. He says, in him, speaking about Christ, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He said, you want to you be who you are today as a Christian? You have to recognize that you had to become holy for that. You had to put off the sins of, of the flesh. How did they do that? Verse 12, they were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. He tells the Colossians, you had to receive this circumcision, and you did receive this circumcision when you were buried with Christ in baptism. And they just couldn't receive the land, the Israelites, they couldn't receive the land without bearing that mark of the covenant. That mark that I am in a relationship with God. And you know, we shouldn't expect either. 
to enter into our promised land, to enter into heaven without taking seriously our need to be consecrated, our need to be marked with the covenant of God and made holy. Now we look at passages like Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10 reminds us that our confession is part of that circumcision as well. That Jesus is the Lord, that God has raised Him from the dead. We must be willing to confess that. Say that those words with our mouth and mean it. Also say those words with our actions and show it. To walk in such a way that says, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And I believe that God is the one that did that. And He is the Lord of my life today. But we also need to remember passages like 1 Peter 3.21. Whenever Peter was describing how, how water saved Noah and his family from the destruction of the world, he says, in like manner, baptism now doth save us. Turn over to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. Romans 6 verses 1 through 7. Paul dealt with a similar issue in Rome. And listen to what he says to them. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. There Paul is reminding the Christians in Rome, that when they were baptized, he said, you know what happened in your baptism? You were united with Christ in His death. You were made like Him in His death. And if we've been united with Him in His death, we are free in life. We are freed from sin. But we need to live that way. If you go on, verses 8-14, through 14, he says, If you die with Christ, believe that we also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members of instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He says, you recognize what happened, guys? When you died in baptism, when you made yourself like Christ in baptism, through, uh, like His death through baptism, you died to sin. So quit walking in it. Quit living in it. Quit marching in that direction. Start to march towards life. We have to be consecrated. We have to be holy. Because our God is holy. And so that means we have to follow Him. And in following Him, we find that there is only one way to get to the Father. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Where I prepare this place, I want you to be there also. You know what, that, what He's saying to His disciples, what He's saying to us? He says, I want you in heaven. I mean, we really need to let that sink in for a minute. Jesus came to this earth, something He never had to do. He was, he was God. He created the world. There is nothing forcing him, but he chose to come to this earth in obedience to his Father, out of love for the Father, out of love for us, so that he could come and he could say, I want you to be in heaven with me and the Father. I want that. And his apostle Thomas said, well, how do we do that? We don't know the way. And his response to him, John chapter 14 and in verse 4, he said, I am the way. I'm the way. I'm how you get there. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says there's only one way to get to the Father. And so what our, our, our thought this morning should be, do I want to be with the Father? Do I want to be with Jesus in heaven? Is that my desire? And if the answer to that question is yes, the way, the only way, is through Christ. Maybe this is the reason we have so much confusion in this world. Because I believe there are many people in this world who want that. I want to be in heaven with the Father. How do I get there? And the question they're asking is, which church is the one that's going to take me there? 
which church is the one that's going to take me to the Father? I've quit asking this question. I want you just, just to know that. I don't ask that particular question anymore. Which church is right? And I would challenge you to stop asking that question too if you've been thinking that question. I ask myself today, which way is right? That's the example Jesus gives us. There's a way that leads to heaven, and it's through Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Today, many are saying, I want to go to heaven. And so I'm going to follow the teachings of this church. I'm going to follow the teachings of this, this figure of, of authority. I'm going to follow the teachings of my family. Whether that be somebody like the, the Pope, or maybe an, an ecumenical patriarch, an archbishop, or a, a convention, a synod, a, a council, a, a, a favorite family member, a preacher, a pastor, that is going to be my source of authority, and that's what's going to get me to heaven. And Jesus was saying, no, it's not. I'm going to get you to heaven. I'm the way. And so instead of saying, well, which church is right? Because this church says I need to do this to be saved, and this one says I need to do that, and, and sometimes those things are completely conflicting with one another, we should just say, what did Jesus say I need to do? And maybe if there's a church, if there are people that are teaching that, and that are holding to those truths, well, I want to be with them. Because they recognize that the church isn't what's getting them to heaven. It's Christ. It's His teachings. It's His way. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago about the confusion. Actually, it might have been last week. said, you know what? A lot of the confusion happens when you march off the path. Isn't that what we said? We march off the path, we get in the mud. We get in the mud, we get in the weeds, we get in the swamps. My dad was a trapper. You know where he put all his traps? To the sides of the paths. Not directly on the path. To something that is going to there's something off of the main path that's going to get the attention of these animals. And that's where he puts his traps. That is where the animals are going to turn off that path and step into a trap. When we turn off the path to Christ and out of His way and into the way of man, into the way of the world, we're turning away. So we need to follow along that path to victory. But we need to also remember that it's His power that leads us. And it's His power. We can follow the best we can, but the best that we do is given to us by Him through grace. <clears throat> in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, the forces of the army of God said, we stand ready to weapons drawn to move alongside you and give you the victory. That was the picture that we see in that passage of the man of God with his weapon drawn. I'm ready to march with you. I'm ready to fight with you. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, there is a beautiful picture of that power manifested today through the grace of God. In that passage, we come to understand this topic of grace that so oftentimes has been, has been abused and mistreated. Listen what he says in verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All men. I don't care what, where you come from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care your, your racial background, your, your economical background, finances. I don't care how smart you are, how dumb you are. God's grace has appeared to all men. And what did it bring? It brought salvation. And it also brought teaching. We continue on. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. His grace came not only to bring salvation, but to teach us how we should live, how we should walk, and to imply that we should live and we should walk a certain way. God's grace teaches us you can't continue on in the way you were living. You have to change. But we also see example that even in changing, we only change because of His grace. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Or excuse me, yeah, 15, verse 10. Uh, there Paul says, he says, Look, I've worked harder than all the other apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. That's the reason we don't have a reason to boast in anything but God. Because the best that we do, the best obedience that we offer, it comes through His grace. 
It comes through His grace to strengthen us to walk in His way, in His path, and to do things the way that He desires. And so what we need to see from all this is that there is a Jericho in our lives today. If we look hard enough, we'll find it. There's something that is likely standing between me and you and our eternal life with God. What is it? What is that thing? I want you to take it from others who have passed down this path before you. <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 14, after they had went and they had preached to these cities, they start passing back through the cities that they preached at. And listen to what they say. In verse 22, as they went back through the regions, they preached, telling them to, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I said, it's not going to be just one thing that crops up that poses a problem for you. It's going to happen, and if you trust in God, and if you are consecrated, and if you follow His path, and if you rely on His grace, you will overcome it. You will be victorious, and another one will show up. Satan doesn't stop. He moves around like a roaring lion. He's ready to try and throw something else in your way. Don't let that discourage you. That's why when he went through there, he also encouraged them to continue in the faith, strengthen the souls of the disciples. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to praise God, we're here to worship Him, and we're here to strengthen and press one another onto good love and good works because we know there's Jerichos in our lives. And there's things we have to overcome, and we need to be strong in the faith, and we need to be strong in our souls. So brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we're not wasting our time. The work of the Lord is not work that is done in vain. <clears throat> this morning, have you heard the Word of God? that tells you that Jesus Christ came to this world and died for your sins so that you could have freedom from those sins. And do you believe that? Do you believe that not only He came to this world and died, but that He was raised up by the power of God, raised to the position of Lord, Savior of mankind. And all authority has been given to Him, even the authority in your life has been given to Him. Will you give it also? If you believe those things then what is stopping you from coming to Him? Because if you need a picture of a Jericho, there's your picture. If it's fear, if it's a lack of trust, lean upon God's Word. Remember what He has done in the past for you. Because we need to remember every one of us needed that sacrifice. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need that sacrifice in our lives. And we need to confess that Jesus is that Lord and that He's been raised to life. And we need to be like Him in His death, consecrated and holy, buried in baptism, having our sins washed away so that we can rise to a new life where we learn from the grace of God and we walk in a new direction. And I want you to know that's not my invitation. That's His. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who labor. If you would like to come to Him, to His rest, to His peace, to His salvation, Jesus is offering today to help you to tear down the walls that are keeping you away from Him and enter into that rest with Him in heaven. If we can help you this morning, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.